Today's episode of Between the Covers is brought to you by Shirley Magazine. Shirley is a new online fiction magazine publishing three times a year. Named an homage to Shirley Jackson, the magazine seeks the sublimely strange, the eerie, the grotesque, the beautiful. To read the first two issues or submit your work, visit www.shirleymag.com. Stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition, was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a a catalyst for dialogue and and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning, and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is the singular Amelia Gray. Her books include the story collection AMPM and Museum of the Weird, the winner of the American Book Review Innovative Fiction Prize, her debut novel Threats, a finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award, and her latest collection of 38 short stories, Gutshot. Amelia Gray's work is hard to classify. The writings of George Saunders, Shirley Jackson, Jorge Luis Borges, and the films of David Lynch and David Cronenberg have all been mentioned as comparisons, as ways to approximate the strange worlds Amelia Gray creates. It's perfect that our conversation about her latest book, Gutshot, is airing just before Halloween. NPR calls it a book brimming with blood, sexual deviance, mucus, and madness. The New York Times says reading Gutshot is a little like being blindfolded and pelted from all sides with fire, jello, and the occasional live animal. And Vice Magazine calls it a book full of bodily fluids and strange sights and smells. That said, Gray's work is not disturbing for disturbing sake, but as the Chicago Tribune says, it has an unflinching intimacy that is completely and absorbingly her own, and that if there is one story Gray is telling over and over again, it's about the embodiedness of language, the blood and guts of books themselves. Welcome to Between the Covers, Amelia Gray. Thank you. So I wanted to start out with this relationship that you have to the disturbing material that you write, because I was listening to, in preparation for the interview, to your interview with uh, Brad Listy on Mm -hmm. Other People, And you talk about how you yourself break into hives at a disturbing thought. And so I'm thinking to myself, you break into hives at a disturbing thought, yet your stories seem to also hone in and dial down on the the disturbing. So tell us a little bit about this paradox or seeming paradox. Well, yeah, it's a very bodily paradox, I guess. Um, I I, I had broken out into hives this morning, actually, and I have a little one right now. Um, <laughs> is that because I'm disturbing? Yeah, I'm deeply, deeply disturbed. I mean, we're in, we're in to the to the listeners a strange um, room that only has windows to other people working on the radio and talking to each other, and it is a very strange place. <laughs> I feel very unsettled, um, but but somehow comfortable, which I think is kind of the bodily thing that that I like to write about and think about. It's like we're in the chamber of a heart right now. Um, and or or maybe a brain, and there are many different working parts and that you can see but not reach. And maybe if we banged on the windows, that that guy with his headphones on would know um, that we were here. But maybe he wouldn't, even if this room began to fill with water. So it's hard to know. Yeah. Um, but well, well, the the I'm imagining the urge to make yourself and the writer yourself, the writer, and your characters, and the reader, uncomfortable is complex. Um, but tell us a little bit more about what's what's compelling to you about it as a writer. Um, what will you feel is gained from putting yourself in that place in order to create something in your relationship to your reading audience? You know, it's a good question, and it's one that I 
that I haven't gotten quite to the bottom of yet. I I sort of just follow the impulse to to go there and um and to to sit with an uncomfortable emotion or an f- uncomfortable physical thing. Um because I feel maybe it's because when I'm writing it I feel like there's something gained by going going there. It's it's a way to uh to to heighten the tension of something in my own mind anyway uh to really think about why you know a character might convince a, a, a another character to get into the ventilation ducts of her house as a sex thing um and and what what what's gained from that in order to really uh Im- embody pun intended the the feeling of of these two people i i want to really think about like what would it feel like inside this duct and it would be cold and then what would happen to you physically inside if you were there for a couple of days and um and so then that gets gross quickly i mean humans if you're really honest with yourself are really gross all the time really gross stunningly gross it's true how much we don't really realize probably how much we're editing out of a person's daily life or when we're reading a story, how much is not being looked at Mm -hmm. about what someone's doing in a daily experience. Yeah, I was talking to a a scholar once who made her life's work is the relation of how different cultures look at poop versus how they think about God and and how in her mind there are these very complex and uh, connections based on if you if you are, live in a place where they where you never see it and you flush it away or if you live in a place where the toilet has like a strange platform where you can examine it like what that means about your relationship with the infinite is very close i would guess that a lot of uh readers would assume that a lot of the fantastical and strange things that are happening in gut shot are things that you've invented but as you're pointing to that you're also seeing things in, in mm. real life that are just by their very nature are strange or weird or repulsive. And it reminds me of a, of you also talking in with Brad Listy about uh, having night terrors and at one point even knocking out windows with your feet in your sleep and, mm-hmm. and having a mysterious itch only when you're in bed. Yeah. That um, that sounds like one of your stories, <laughs> even though it's happening in real life. It's, yes. It seems like a starting place for one of your stories, certainly. Right. I think... I think I've been afflicted with some strange bodily things, probably born of anxiety. But I think a lot of I think that strange bodily things is not a very very uncommon thing. Um, roving itch is not good, and kicking. I only kicked out one window, but it was a doozy. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, so that's that is. Um, but night terrors and and. Uh, Night terrors is not terribly common among adults. It is more common among five-year-olds, I learned. And um, But I've talked to a lot of people who have night sleep paralysis, which sounds like a truly like sickeningly terrifying thing that I've, yeah. I've never had. But whenever, I, whenever someone talks to me about it, my skin crawls just thinking about it. So when you, when you have that experience, say, like take the sleep paralysis as an example, and maybe that's intriguing mm-hmm. to you to start a story with, are you taking that and then going sideways with some other aspect. I've heard you talk mm-hmm. about uh, collage as a possible metaphor for the way you you put some of your stories together. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, and and that's and that's exactly what I would do. The thought of of being outside your body in the sense of sleep paralysis reminds me of being outside your body in other ways, like being outside your body during a traumatic event or <clears throat> wanting to be outside your body or maybe um being an actor or some other kind of performer as a profession and being outside of your body and and thinking about where where those things might connect and and where they might um like so then then I might say like well what's is there a world in which having sleep paralysis could make you the most famous person in the world or something like that and then you, I've got a story maybe and in this collection gutshot you have 38 stories and most of them are pretty short, a couple pages long. And even in your novel Threats, it's the chapters are, are really short. Um, mm-hmm. it, what, what, is, what is it about the short form that attracts you and, um, as, as a place to, uh, to tell these tales? Sometimes it's simply that the idea is not very big. Like it's a, it's a little kernel of an idea. And 
I and Kafka would do it all the time and Calvino would do it all the time. Lydia Davis does it a lot and where it's just a you know a piece that you just you can you can serve on a little plate and you don't need to go through an, a character's entire sexual history in order to understand this one um scene from their life. Um so it just for me it boils down to the size of the size of the idea that I want to explore or portray which are two different things really. You've said in in other interviews before that you like writing fiction on assignment that um having a prompt in mind or a constraint um, that that is something that's been generative for you. Are, mm-hmm. are these stories or any of these stories uh, the results of specific constraints or prompts? Uh, yes, I have. Um, I wrote a story called Year of the Snake for a, a it was going to be a, in a catalog, like a clothing catalog that they wanted just something that was Oh, the the prompt was really huge, but they wanted something that was pretty long and also like fabulous and um and strange. And so I, it was a it was a broad corkboard, but I got to play with that. And then um the my story Viscera was actually after um Raymond Quino's Exercises in Style, which was a book that he made of um to show I, I think it might have been fifty, fifty two different kinds of um different types of style like uh, he would have a he had one basic story about people on a bus um somebody's late onto the bus there's a, a some kind of missing button situation the bus pulls out of the station and and then he would rewrite that story to explain like aphorism um or like malpropisms or um metaphors and and so just he had this this broad collection of those so uh, New Directions was putting out a, a an updated exercises in style with, and they wanted seven new um, exercises. So they asked me to do one, and I chose Viscera because I thought it would be fun to make fun of how visceral I am all the time. Um, and then I wrote a little story about it. That's the first piece that I ever encountered of yours was was reading the New Directions, and, and mm-hmm. there was the stories by. Ben Marcus and Jonathan Lethem mm-hmm. and Vila Matas and a whole mm-hmm. bunch of other people at the end, and I just really fell in love and was wanting to pursue your work after oh, after reading Viscera. Yeah. Um, but what's really remarkable about the exercises and style that it follows is that that story that he chooses to tell isn't really inherently that interesting until he like mm-hmm. puts it through all the different styles and it becomes so amazing. Right. Essentially, through all these iterations. Right. It's so cool, and what I love about it, it as a as a broader work is, it goes against maybe the argument that you have to have like a fascinating story or a lot of a, a million great things happening in the story, or that you, or in a broader sense, that the writer has to have lived this kind of romantic and fascinating and dangerous life in order to make really lasting, cool, um, thought provoking and thoughtful work. So that's what I've always liked about that collection. So it was really, you know, an honor to add to it in some small weird way. Can can we hear Viscera? Yes. This page was once plant material, crushed and sluiced and pressed through a machine in a warehouse, the process overseen by a man plagued with a skin infection. The man, ankles swollen after the sixth hour on the job, would loosen his damp shoelaces for some late-day relief, the flesh pillowing over his yellowed athletic sock, and would scratch the pimpled back of his hand, his wrist, and his arm so liberally that a steady snow of flaked skin would drift onto the pages as they flew through the pressing machine. Naturally, the pages which told the story of an uneventful journey, became infected with his particulate matter. His wounds wept in the morning, but after a hot afternoon in the warehouse, had almost fully clotted, carrying their weep in a scab. Continuing his factory tour, the man found such perverse relief in rubbing a particularly affected spot on his forearm that his eyes rolled wetly back and his mouth dropped wide, allowing a line of spittle to gather at his lip, 
roll down his chin and over his stubble, and drop onto a speeding page, bearing the climax of another story immediately before its entrance into the oven, baking the genetic evidence of his future heart disease into this very page, which you are touching with your hands, and which will find its way into a used bookstore, perhaps after your own death from heart disease, where it will be touched by people ill with the flu, sinus infections, the kind of solid stuff that moves out of the body like a bus pulling out of a station, the empty seat waiting. You've been listening to Amelia Gray read from her collection, Gut Shot. Um, Amelia, I was I was listening to a, a podcast on The New Yorker about disgust, mm-hmm. and uh, there were theories about why we feel disgust, but also some ponderings on why we sometimes enjoy feeling disgust. And they were talking at one point about a philosopher named Colin McGinn who says that disgust happens with blurred boundaries. Mm-hmm. So we aren't disgusted by skeletons, but mm-hmm. we're disgusted by some a person with open sores. Mm-hmm. So that this idea of death penetrating into life. Mm-hmm. And that sort of feels true about viscera. We have – I mean literally we have the skin disease mm-hmm. becoming paper right. and then potentially the word – coming back and infecting other people. Right. Do you have any any thoughts on 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 disgust? That's so cool. I I I hadn't heard that um that you said podcast. That yeah, sounds, I was on the New Yorker yeah, out loud yeah. podcast. Oh, sounds right at my alley. Yeah. Um yeah, like the like the uncanny valley of a of a doll looking the closer a doll looks to 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 humans the there's a spike in in terror and disgust at at the doll. Um, the more it looks real. Yes, there's like it's it's an interesting graph where if a if a doll looks very very fake, um, people feel like a love feeling or a tenderness feeling or or something. But then as as the real as the the the, the verisimilitude the, the reality of it gets closer and closer, and then you get to something like androids or you know, you think about horror movies with, you know, human robots and similar. Then suddenly it drops, and and the feeling becomes of terror. Um, so that's a cool idea that I that I've kind of I kind of like to think about sometimes. And mm. and so sometimes my short stories um, kind of be begin with reality or sound like they come out of reality, but are just a little bit off in a way that is meant to be a little unsettling. And and you mentioned, among others, you mentioned Calvino and you mentioned Cano, and mm-hmm. who are both in the Olipo movement. Do you do mm-hmm. you feel any sort of affinity with 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 the Olipo movement and what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, I like those guys. You like those guys. <laughs> I like those guys. <laughs> I like. Um, I do really like constraints in in writing. I like what um, forcing yourself into a certain pattern uh, can create. Um, maybe it's part of. Uh, I, to me, it just feels like part of creating the world of any story, um, and maybe the world doesn't include the letter E, or 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 maybe it, uh, maybe one character speaks in dialogue that's quotation marks and the other one doesn't, and and what's the result of that? Maybe maybe that means the one that doesn't feels more internal or more, um, or less overt or something. You know, I I like seeing what those little um, to me, they're just small kind of tweaks and, and what what those smaller things do to, like, the experience of reading. Well, other than your stories being short, typically, and also uh, fa- somewhat fantastical often, um, you also have other elements that are that veered away from uh, the more typical contemporary stories. So uh, there's not an emphasis on on familiarization and orientation. It's mm. more defamiliarized and there's there's more estrangement. I was wondering if you felt like some of those choices come out of a school. Like I, I know that when I had China Mieville on and for science fiction, he he very strongly feels part of the weird fiction movement. Mm. And there's some elements of that weird in mm-hmm. some of your stories. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't know if you felt uh, any sort of affinity that you're coming from a specific part of a literary family mm. tree or not necessarily? Well, I mean, I, I always find affinity with the absurdists and the, and the weirdos for sure. 
I I don't know. The the biggest thing for me as a reader uh, is that s- stories that are born of realism that deal with tropes of realism are are um, are boring to me. So I I usually kind of don't go for that unless the writing is really fantastic, as you know, as you'll find. But <laughs> you know, but um, but I don't know. I'm I sort of chafe it at. Um, at guidelines in general, and it's only a part, it's this kind of, um, it's not, I don't think, out of my own ego, although probably ultimately it is, but uh, but I, I really like, um, I, I get a little superstitious about about writing, and I don't want to go in saying, you know, now, you know, eccentric writer Amelia Gray will craft for you a strange short story of unusual proportion. (laughs) That's always, this is never good. It's sort of like when the, I've sat down to write a novel in, you know, to start a novel maybe four times in my life. And whenever I sit down and say, Amelia Gray writes a novel, it doesn't work out. And, and it's something about, for me about like naming the thing, um, I had a I had a friend who she was telling me she was working on a short story for about a year and a half until I finally asked her how long the short story was and she said it was fifty five thousand words. Oh wow! <laughs> said, well, that's a novel. <laughs> that's a novel. And it, she really chafed at that idea. Writers are like um, like baseball like pitchers, you know, in their superstitions sometimes. You wrote an article in the L.A. Times about uh, the importance of Shirley Jackson to oh, you, yeah. and mm-hmm. when you first encountered her and. Tell us a little bit about that. Why you think she's an important writer, and and how she was specifically important in your in your development as a writer? Yeah, when I first heard of Shirley Jackson, I was I I just my my parents had moved us across the country. I was in the tenth grade, which is always a very t- hard time for everyone in hindsight, but felt like I was the only person in the world that was having a hard time going from a performing arts. Uh, school to a super hardcore college prep kind of public school, um, and uh, and so as a result, during lunch I would usually hide in the library, sometimes literally underneath a desk, and the the bookshelf that happened to be across from the my hiding spot underneath the desk was was the JAs, and so I saw all of Shirley Jackson's books kind of lined up there, like just waiting to be picked out. And the, I remember the lottery cover with it's like uh, black and white. And then they also had this really um, thick posthumous collection um, called Just an Ordinary Day, which had a lot of her, um, had, had a lot of early published stuff um, and, and, uh, a, and a couple of unpublished that they'd found later. And now they found even more ever uh, since then, more recently. But um but just uh, but the lottery was so cool because it was such a towering complete feeling work to me and then just an ordinary day was so cool because it was there were little short things and fragments and and these wonderful stories of simmering violence under the surface and i you know encountered her before um flannery o'connor and 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 before you know like um russell edson and and different kind of short writers and and before a lot of fabulists and I mean before almost anybody and and so I got this really nice early accidental education on kind of simmering uh simmering short stories where where um in just an ordinary day which she wrote a lot of them for women's magazines the protagonists are wives that deeply desire to kill their husbands (laughs) (laughs) it's pretty incredible um that she got away with that. And, and you mentioned some really fantastic vignettes about her as a person, yeah. one of them being that she would crank out these mystery novels and not know the ending. And then what did she, what would she do when she didn't? Oh, yeah. She would um, she would write down all the, the names of all the characters in the book and then put them in a hat and then pick out one. And then that would be the murderer. So then she would write the last chapter. like. But she'd already written the whole rest. Yeah, she'd written the whole rest. So she would write the last chapter, tying it all together. Yeah, she did that as a kid, I think, for fun. Yeah. That's wild. And and you mentioned these fragments of stories, but she also bequeathed fragments of her own bones (laughs) to her friends. Yeah, a a friend of a friend supposedly was given 
a bit of a bit of one of her smaller bones <laughs> as a as a gift after her death, yeah. which is so incredible and such a um, such a writerly impulse to want to. I mean, she's got all this all this work that is permanent, but she just wanted also a little bit of herself to be permanent too, which is yeah, so cool. Spirit sisters. Can you uh, pick a story from Gutshot that might have a little affinity with her? Sure. There's there are a few. There's one called um, there's one called the death of James, which is which when I was talking about about the the murderous wives, I was thinking about, and then um, and Labyrinth is also um, a, a real lottery style story in its construction. But uh, I think I'd like to read um, Monument which is got a little bit of her eeriness and a little bit of of her um kind of kind of uh darkness right around halloween i think it's appropriate the townspeople met at the graveyard at the agreed upon time they brought bottles of vinegar for the weeds and pails of water and rags and soaps a gardener hauled in a truck bed of hardy plants One lady had flowers tucked in a laundry basket, and a few of the men brought shovels to even out the earth around the yard's only tree. Someone started up a lawnmower. Without much conversation, they got to work. They scrubbed gravestones until the names gleamed. The lawnmower sputtered to life, and its owner began to trace the site's perimeter. A man gathered faded silk flowers in a trash bag, The children held smaller pails and cups of water and cleaned out the stone's grooved details with their fingers. Each person gave their unspoken thoughts of respect to the graves they cleaned. These were the resting places of their friends and neighbors. Even those long dead had left generations in witness. Most worked in silence. An old man took a break from cleaning his wife's stone to wipe his eyes with a handkerchief. Someone whistled a hymn. Work around the tree was going well. Its roots had disturbed the ground, and the area needed to be smoothed and resodded. An usher at the church swung a shovel full of peat a little farther back than he had intended. The shovel clipped a gravestone and sent a piece of the stone flying into the high grass. The sound rang out across the field. A light metal ping and stopped the crowd. People looked to see what happened. A few dropped their things and came closer. Wiping their foreheads on their sleeves, they regarded the stone. It was the grave of an upstanding member of the community, a woman who had been well-loved when she died. Most of her kin were in attendance, and her young grandchildren played a spirited game of hide-and-seek around the graves. The man who had swung the shovel looked at each of them in turn. The woman's eldest son stepped forward to inspect the damage. He ran his finger along the stone at its sheared point. The granite wasn't very old, but its surface had dulled after years of rain and sun. His mother's name was still clearly marked, and the grooves were rimmed with grime. A line of earth clung where the shovel had struck, and the stone that chipped off had given way to the mica sparkling inside. He laid an open palm on the place. The split portion, cool and freshly exposed to the afternoon sun, seemed tender to the touch. When he lifted his shovel, the crowd took a step back. He swung it like an axe onto the gravestone, landing heavy and breaking off a larger piece. He leaned forward and touched the place again. It was so fresh it looked wet, as if a vein of spring water spread through it. Again he lifted the shovel. The townspeople stood, watching the man's destructive work. After a few minutes, one of the women leaned down and put her full weight against a brittle stone. It fell, splitting cleanly in two, and she covered it with fistfuls of earth. An old man took a shovel to his sister's memorial, lopping off the delicate angel's head that crowned it. He scrambled after the head, scooped it up, and threw it with surprising strength over the far fence. The crowd sprang to action. 
Children gouged limestone with their trowels. Someone went back to his truck for a baseball bat. A woman beat her husband's stone with her fists until she was pulled away and given a pickaxe. They worked in this way until nothing remained. You've been listening to Amelia Gray read Monument from her collection, Gutshot. A lot of reviewers comment on on the unusual shape of your stories. They don't have traditional story arcs necessarily, and the endings don't necessarily tie up all the elements in the way you might expect in a in a you know typical contemporary short story. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was curious how how do you know when you found an ending, and or another way to put this, uh, what sort of endings do you like and uh, and search for, and which ones do you find annoying? Mm, yeah. Well, when I first started writing, I was I wrote endless uh, stories about really polite, obedient uh, young white girls who <laughs> who found themselves in a strange situation, and then the story always ended with them standing on the pre- precipice of their lives, and and it was it was <laughs> you know I wonder why, uh, but uh, I I ended up you know once I once I realized and was told enough that that those that people don't read don't necessarily read stories to um to have that experience i i guess that was posited to me because sometimes certainly people do read that read stories to have that experience of being caught between two worlds and this like cool feeling but it was suggested to me that maybe um, maybe something happening in a story would be a cool idea. And I tried it out, and indeed it was. And I, <laughs> I found that uh, uh, for me, um, you know, shaping a story around an action was was really satisfying. And also, you know, when I had a character who wanted to do something, I started having them do it just to see what would happen, you know, even if it was crazy, um, just as an exercise, you know, like, and then, and then she pulled off a piece of her skin, you know, and then that becomes a a very interesting idea, like what's underneath there. Um, so that's, but that's me as an absurdist, I guess, is that I, is that I can go there, um, in that way, but, but, um, but really anyone can. (laughs) So, uh, so that's, that's, I guess the kind of, that's the kind of, of stakes I like where, where anything can happen really, um, where we're always reminding ourselves that it is fiction, um, and, and seeing what we can do with that. And, and so in this, in Monument, uh, you know, when they started destroying the graves, that was kind of the, that was kind of the idea. And, uh, I could have had it go on and they could have destroyed each other or the town or the world, um, or they could have killed all the dogs or something, but I, I don't know. As I, I guess I, if I'd considered those things, um, I wouldn't, I, I would have wondered kind of what the point was or what really could be said beyond, beyond what was said there. And, and I like keeping in a short story, particularly, I like keeping the point nice and nice and small. If it were a novel, um, or part of a novel, I would push it and, and go further and, find the find a person who didn't like it or or you know see what the what the minister thought or you know any number of ways that could right. spider web out but but yeah in this it was it was a nice uh it felt good and just just to destroy a graveyard which you know I would never do in real life and you can't catch me well well you've you've said about writing gutshot in particular that it required more bravery from you as a writer mm-hmm. um how so? Like, what what about these stories versus previous ones um, required courage? Yeah, well, it's a real nerdy bravery, uh, <laughs> I will say. But um, but writing about writing about parent relationships and sibling relationships in a way that that um, I didn't I didn't want to make my you know I have a sister and I have parents and I didn't want to make anybody uncomfortable. Um, exploring those ideas and thinking about motherhood and um, and fatherhood, and um, so there's some of that, and then there's some there's some vi- sexual violence, which has always been the hardest violence to write um, for me, and 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 that's also kind of related to not wanting to 
I don't know, worry people or and not wanting to go there and not wanting to talk about it afterwards. Just like, here's a story I wrote, never want to talk about it again. Bye. Mm -hmm. And then, then, uh, you know, once it came out and was published and now it's in this book, I I can talk about anything in this book as some kind of magic of it, of it going out there in the world and, and not getting, I don't know, laughed at by everyone is a good thing. Um, But was there a particular story that uh, took yeah. the most out of you to 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 go there and make. Yes, uh, there's a story called. Um, it used to be called Victim Series, but now it's called Away From. Um, yeah, it's called Away From, and it's about. Um, I I was reading about a serial killer in Ohio, and his uh, this great uh, piece of reportage that that a local paper in I think Cleveland did about. Um, about his victims, they like went through all of their their histories. It was it was it was a you know these number of women, and a lot of them were sex workers, and some of and a lot of them were were drug users, and um, you know single mothers, and poverty line, and homeless, and 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 the the the, the broader reportage was was very dismissive of them. But it, I really liked how the I think it was the Cleveland Plains Dealer did a. Uh, a really close look at them, and so I, I wanted to write a story that kind of honored each of them, and so the original version had um, pieces for all of them, but then it 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 felt horrible to write, and uh, and and uh, and then it also felt kind of weirdly um, like uh, it it felt like exploitation to to read and apprehend. So so it, I ended up having to put a lot of myself in it. I consolidated, and I. I found this the most salient story to me and then I and then I stuck myself in there so deep that you know that it it was that it was incredibly painful to write mm. um yeah and I didn't want to publish it at all but um I don't know I don't know it ended up it ended up doing something that I that I liked and it and made me feel really weird and and so I decided to try and print it and see how I felt. Uh, I could read the first paragraph of it. Okay, that sounds great. Great. He showed me a bottle and said he could use some company. I figured I could use some too, and so I went, as he was my neighbor and we had common ground between us, I mean underfoot. Think about all the times you ever wanted to rest. He was my neighbor, and I saw him around every now and then walking. We went to his house and picked up lighters from the corner store on the way. He didn't seem that strong at the time. So, in, so like that's the first paragraph, and in a, in a way, it's it kind of encapsulates um, the whole story of this, you know, this this idea of of rationalizing making this choice to herself. Um, in a way that's kind of post-violence or post-death or however however the reader wants to look at it. And also kind of uh, myself saying, thinking about all, thinking about these kind of strange interactions with people and how they start so innocently. And, you know, I don't know, we were, I was tired or I was mad or I was, I'd been walking all day or, you know, (laughs) the millions of reasons why any of us, you know, uh, uh, find ourselves in, any number of situations. You have another story, 50 Ways to Eat Your Lover, that is a story that engages with violence, but with a totally different tone. And I don't know if this is your experience of it, but it seems to be to be the most polarizing uh, story in the collection that some people have pointed it out as one of their favorites. Mm -hmm. And some people have pointed it out as the, Mm -hmm. the one that shouldn't be there, perhaps. Uh, is, Is that your your uh, impression of it in the world? Oh, for sh- for certain, yeah, for yeah. sure. Uh, and and my impression in writing it was to write a, uh, a a funny story and also a very like romantic and sentimental story. That um, t- and and to me, I guess when I write romance, it has to get real real weird and gross. And 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 uh, well, it seems like a good one to read for Halloween, though, don't you think? <laughs> Let's a, try it. A gross romantic. <laughs> story that's polarizing the world okay yeah yeah okay when he buys you a drink plunge a knife into his nose and carve out a piece 
When he asks you what you do for a living, dig into his spine with a broken juice glass. When he wonders aloud if you ever get that feeling about someone, bite his tongue out of his mouth. When he says you have a beautiful body, seize his Achilles tendon. When he slides his hand under your thigh, sliver off his earlobe. When he persuades you to spend the night, sink your teeth into his collarbone. When he asks if you're on the pill, squeeze your pelvic floor until his penis pops off. When he wakes up in the morning, clip his eyelashes and snort him. When he makes the bed, open up the vein inside his elbow. When he stops by your place after work, crush his skull with a tire iron and lick his brain. When he gives you a book he likes, dip him into a deep fryer. When he asks you out again, stab him with a box cutter and suck the wound. When he wants to know what movie you'd like to see, wrap a piano wire around his testes until they drop into your mouth. When he takes a picture of you, grind his toes with a pestle. When he asks where you've been all his life, clamp your mouth to his side meat. When he asks you if you're going to write about him, push a corkscrew into his shin and chew what curls out. When he takes you to meet his parents, smother him with a pillow and eat his middle finger. When he moves his books into your apartment, take a grater to his knuckles. When he brings home a puppy, shave the skin from his heels. When he tells you he loves you, paper cut his fingertips and suck their blood. When he asks you to marry him, pan fry his foreskin. When he takes you to Paris, wrench his wrist and gobble the tendon. When he builds you a desk, tap a piece of bone from his hip with an awl. When he asks you to get up off the floor, wedge an oyster knife behind his kneecap until there's space in there for your tongue. When he works late and won't discuss it, peel off a layer of his facial dermis. When he slams the door, spread citric acid across his nipples and latch on. When he kisses someone else, flay his abdominal skin. When he says he's sorry, snatch his nose. When he tells you that you don't love him, rip a fistful of hair from his head and put it on your cereal. When he wants to know if he's made himself clear, press your thumb against his eye socket and slurp the goop. When he says he's sorry you feel that way, peel off his toenails and sprinkle them on a salad. When he says he needs some time off, jam his hand into a toaster. When he shows up with flowers, nibble the hair from his arms. When he invites you on a walk, crush his elbow in a vise. When he asks if you'll take him back, tuck your fingers under his lowest rib and pull. When he draws you a bath, sever his smallest toe. When he offers you his arm, squash his neck flesh in your fist. When he asks you to wear the dress he likes, slice off a slab of his buttock and serve it to yourself on a plate. When he wants to know if you think he'd be a good father, broil his viscera. When he marvels at how much time has passed, gnaw the skin between his fingers. When he asks you to take it down a notch at the Christmas party, pour wine into his ear and drink what drains out. When he teaches your kids to drive, masticate his chin. When he takes you out for your anniversary, squeeze his forearm till it bursts. When he says you've looked a little pale this year, open his throat with a rough wedge. When he drives you to the doctor, cut a knot of muscle from his upper thigh with a handsaw. When he sits with you for months, chew off the tip of his thumb. When he tells the hospice nurse to leave you both alone, work a tube into his larynx. When he says you've had a good life together, force your finger into his mouth and scrape out his soft palate. When he says he'll miss you, Dig a spoon into his belly button. When he says goodbye, eat his heart out. 50 Ways to Eat Your Lover by Amelia Gray. Um, we should replay that on Valentine's Day, too, oh, that's right? That's very sweet. I would like that. Halloween and then Valentine's. <laughs> Since this was a story that you know some reviewers tended to focus on for the positive and the negative, is what, what writers are disturbing to you, are unsettling to you, if, if anybody comes to mind? Ones that are unnerving. Um, hmm. Thinking about ones that are too much. Well, you know that the the book Geek Love. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the author is escaping me. 
Catherine, Catherine Dunn, Dunn from yeah. Portland. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hometown hero, man. Hometown hero. That was the first book I couldn't finish. I, I tried to read it when I was too young, though. Hopefully I, she's not listening. No, no, it's not that. I eventually finished it and loved it <laughs> <laughs> very much. No, yeah. she's a master. It was just, um, I tried to read it. I, I was into like kind of nerdy narratives when I was like 15. And I, I just read Micro Surfs, which is about the tech world. And then I thought Geek Club would be a similar thing based partly on its cover. Uh, and then I started reading it and it was just mind blown uh, wildness and weirdness. And uh, it's incredible. It's so good. Um, and at the time, it was too much. <laughs> yeah. Well, tell us about the title, uh, Gut Shot, because I, I um, encountered an old interview with Blake Butler. Mm-hmm. I think it was on HTML Giant mm-hmm. that where you talk about how gut appears in every in everything that you've written every collection that you've written and here we have it as a as a title Hi, as well as a story i totally forgotten about that uh, yeah you it's let's see what did you say just that you've included yeah. it at least once in every book huh. yeah <laughs> there you go do you, is is that ringing a bell uh yes now now vaguely but it's funny how i just kind of said that and then internalized it immediately <laughs> yeah it ends up on the title yeah i i was gonna call the book in the moment for years it felt like because it's um there's a story called in the moment that's very uh encapsulating about the collection and uh and i i thought it was kind of a cool phrase but it's also kind of like a like a like an, a late 80s short story collection title in the moment. Like you think of it in this kind of Nagel painting style, like pastel kind of triangles. Yeah, totally um, different tone. I know. Gut shot. <laughs> Very different, yes. yeah. It was it was right before I had to turn the book in. Uh, one morning I woke up and was just like, it should be called gut shot. Uh, I had to make sure that that was a word and that it wasn't taken already because it seemed like it would have been. And miraculously, both it it was a word and not taken. Although, um, gut shot is is mostly it's meant to. There's a, there's like a kombucha that's called gut shot, and then there's also like a you can have a gut shot straight in poker, uh, which is a weird kind of rare hand. And the kombucha didn't sponsor your book tour. Sadly, no. No. I could use some right now. Yeah. Uh, but no. Yeah, so I so I uh, I could have just called it Gutshot, but as I was thinking, what kind of story would be called Gutshot? I I wrote a, a little like two page or one page story that was both kind of had my my humor and was illustrative, and if someone wanted to judge a book by its you know title, uh, they could look at that and and be a little bit amused and confused maybe. So you wrote the story after deciding to change the title. Yes. Towards the title. Right. Oh, that's interesting. Strange. What are you working on now? Now I'm working on a novel. It's historical fiction set 100 years ago and where I'm kind of playing with voice a lot. Uh, Is I'm, your story with Ulysses S. Grant in Gutshot uh, give us a hint of like that endeavor in some respect or not really? It maybe gives a hint of the voice a little bit because that – that story has got kind of a complexity on the line level that was new for me when I was writing it and and now I've I've been doing it all the time. So so there is there is some of that. In terms of of content it's it's totally different. Totally different. But and, and is it formally like threats where the, you've got very s- short paragraphs? No, I mean short chapters. Short chapters? No, no, it's it's really long chapters and I'm actually make trying to make them longer it's funny because uh as i as i'm now i'm i'm editing the draft and my deadline is january but as i'm looking at it i really want the reader to because it skips around from point of view and in time a lot uh, whereas threats is pretty almost totally linear not totally but um it's it's a lot easier to orient yourself in threats, uh, so I I felt okay I think making the chapters so short, but in this new one, there's a, I I had everything kind of puzzle pieced out in the same way and dates are really particular and places and 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 then reading back trying to picture trying to imagine myself as a reader thinking like like I 
I don't care if this is happening on like April 27th in Devon or April 28th in Darmstadt. Like, I just need to express what is happening. And probably I need to not skip around madly or else the reader will not care to follow. It's You want the reading. I, I mean, I'm, I feel like I'm inventing it as I go along because I'm not a big just because I'm not a big historical fiction reader, but... Um, Anything but, that you're discovering that's surprising from going into a longer form for you he, for the first time? Yeah, yeah, of course. It's... Well, I mean, there's this is part of what I'm talking about, of like um, like the the, the need to, to orient the reader, invent the world, and just hang out there for a bit because it's a pain in the butt to to like as the reader to go in again and be like, all right, where are we now? You know, what, what city, like what person? And, and so to, to kind of just chill out and, and with a person's thoughts and emotions is, that's a little bit unlike what I've done before. It's, it's cool though. It's been very, it's been like freeing in a way. And and you're doing some recordings on vinyl with some musicians as well is that true oh i might yeah you might yeah. be i read that somewhere you read that somewhere <laughs> yeah there's there's no commitment you don't have to right. say anything no, yeah. about it if yeah, it's not yeah. happening no there's a couple things out there where um because i love i love performing my work um especially when i don't have this rad vocal fry <laughs> going on but uh i i love reading it and yelling it and I love uh, collaborating, and a couple of musicians have kind of intimated that we might we might work together, or or that we might. And a couple of production places have have talked about maybe doing a, a vinyl thing, which is so cool to think about um, for me of of you know that kind of that kind of medium and playing with what that can do and can't do. And uh, yeah, I, I recorded a day trotter session um, in uh, um, a a couple of weeks ago and the the audio guy was putting it on on reels in a way that was sort of like one take you know and if you if we if you want to re-record we can do another take but we're not gonna I'm not gonna go in and splice things together and if you screw it up then that's he was he was like I really like that about about the form and and you know uh, and so that was like a very cool, like high energy, high stress. But the result is, I think, really yeah, was awesome. really cool. Yeah. And are you a, a celebrator of Halloween? I am a celebrator of Halloween. Yeah. yeah. Are, you, do you know what you're going to be? Oh, that's where that was going. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sadly, I haven't. Uh, I haven't nailed it down yet. I I sort of want to like drape myself in weird sequins uh, or blood. Um, but I, I end up, you know, uh, not not uh, not pulling it together in time. I'm going to be coming back from Hawaii the day before, so maybe I could do like a tourist zombie. Tourist zombie. Yeah, yeah, dead dead tourist zombie. Yeah. Well, it was great having you on Between the Covers, Amelia. Yeah, thanks, David. We were talking today to author Amelia Gray about her collection Gutshot. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Mm-hmm.